Welcome into the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin. And I'm Brett. And we are excited to have you with us here. We are rolling right along. Uh, We are going to be going through our third episode today. Uh, We do want to remind you, wherever you're listening to your podcasts, whether it be Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, make sure that you rate, comment, and subscribe. Uh, And if you're going to be leaving us a rating, we want to make sure that you give us the five-star rating. Otherwise, we'll just be inclined to think you're a hater. And if you think we don't deserve the five-star rating, then email us and tell us a suggestion. Yeah, we got a good idea. I mean, we're open. We definitely want to hear uh, hear some of your feedback, Brett. Has there been have we re- received any feedback so far? No, we haven't received any feedback so far, except for by word of mouth. Okay, like I've, you know, I have my friends, my family giving us feedback. They say keep on trucking. They like what we're doing, but I'd like to hear from people that I don't know. Yeah, that, sure. That just hear from it or hear about it from other people. Send us an email, doublecheckpodcast.com. Send us a question. We'd love to take questions and uh, and answer them. Give a nice five, six-minute answer. Just talk about something that's on your mind as well. Absolutely. I, you know, actually, I, I did see a little bit of feedback uh, when one of the podcasts was shared on, on social media. Somebody commented saying that uh, we, we should call the, the podcast CoxCast. Who uh, said that? I don't know. Probably one of your one of your students from from back in the day. Oh yeah, I used to teach high school band, and so I have quite the following with the high school age kids. They probably said that. Yeah, that was probably yeah. a kid. Yeah. Oh, we did get one more piece of feedback. What's that? From a friend of mine who is an engineer, so he's very mathematical, whatever. And we talked about the Pythagorean theorem last time. Yeah. And uh, he wanted to make sure that we clarified that the theorem always works. It's just that people sometimes misapply it, like in the instance that you said. The curvature of the Earth? Like people use it for things like the curvature of the Earth, so it's not accurate then. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, he'll appreciate that the Pythagoras theorem always works two-dimensionally. Yeah, like exactly. when you right. when you yeah, start yeah. getting into actual reality that we live in, and you're you're starting to measure you measure out a triangle on the face of the Earth, you you're dealing then with with more advanced mathematics than the Pythagorean theorem yeah. can can deal with. And I, he totally appreciates that. He just wanted to make sure that math always always works. He wanted to make sure everyone knew that, and of course, right? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, All God right. invented math; it always works. All right. Well, um, let's uh, just before we get into it today, just briefly um, for for anyone who may be joining us late, uh, reiterate a little bit of the the purpose of uh, of what we're trying to do with this. Yeah. So, double check podcast is called Double Check for a reason. We're trying to double check our thoughts on life, theology, and culture—the things that actually matter—and it is important to think about these things. And it's super important for us to. Make sure that we're right about this. It's not good enough to just think about it and come up with something like we want to make sure that we are thinking about things in the correct light. And so we come at it from a Christian worldview, but we are open to all sorts of different worldviews, all sorts of different questions. We'd love to have some discourse uh, with other people. And we're we're not assuming that everyone is a Christian, but uh, that is kind of our bent, our well, worldview that we're coming from. We do welcome anyone who wants to give us feedback from a different worldview. We'd love to answer any of those questions or objections or comments or death threats that come in. <laughs> Um, you know, so make sure that you send those our way because we'd, we'd love to read them. 
Hey, if we get a death threat, it might mean that we're actually making some headway with something. Yeah, probably. Maybe. All right. <laughs> well, uh, should we get into it? Yeah, we'll get into it. And I get to call it this time because you yes. called it two times before. Yes. So you're going to call actually our next two. So this is episode yeah. three. You're going to call episode three and four. And then we'll switch it back. And we'll switch it back. Okay. Uh, and so, All right. I'll call it in there. This is the official flip. That's heads and that's tails. I'm going to flip it. I'm going to catch it. I'm going to turn it over. Is it a commemorative coin? It no, is, it's not. Uh, it's just actually a just a quarter. It does say in God we trust, though, so there that's, we go. that's accurate. America. All right. All right. What's your call? Uh, heads. Heads is the call. There's the official flip. And it came up tails. Tails. So uh, tails never fails, of course. Uh, Except I get to for choose. whenever it failed before. Well, it fails 50% of the time. So. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, that adage is not accurate. Anyway, uh, since I won the toss, I'm going to go ahead and defer, and right. uh, Brett is going to have to uh, kick the ball first here. All right, so today I'm going to wrap up our talk about discerning a call from God on our life. If you remember, in the first episode, I talked about a general call versus a specific call from God. And then in the second episode, I talked about how our feelings of aspiration and the Holy Spirit play a role in how we discern a call from God on our lives. We're going to conclude this, this train of thought by talking about how to check to see if you've discerned a call from God. You see, I believe God has gifted us with some referees, so to speak, in our lives to help us feel more certain about a call that he might have placed or to show us that we haven't actually discerned what God would have for us. But why would we need a referee? Let's say you feel like you've heard from the Holy Spirit you pray through it, and now you're ready to go for it. We got to remember that we're all fallen people. We talked about this before. We have to remember that we're not the story of our lives. Even if we think we are the story of our own life, the truth is, is that creation was made for Jesus and not for you. If you want a scripture reference for that, check out Colossians 1. We aren't insignificant, but we are just a part of the story. We're part of God's story. We are all individuals, but we're so much more than that, too. We are individual parts of the greatest story that could ever be told or conceived. So we need some help to stay on track. It's my belief God has gifted us with three referees that help us in confirming a call from God. The first one is easy. We've already been doing it probably as we've been trying to listen to the Holy Spirit through this whole process. It's continued prayer. As we continue to pray, we stay in communication with God, the Father, and we hear from the Holy Spirit so that they can speak into the situation that we're praying about to see if we may have been mistaken or if the Spirit changes directions. The second referee that God has given us is His Word, and by Word, I mean the Bible. But I don't just mean the Bible only. I also mean Jesus. If you want to look at that, look at John 1, where Jesus is called the Word. Jesus claims to fulfill the law. And therefore, he affirms its power and authority through his own power and authority, as you can see through his resurrection. So if we think that we've discerned a call from God, but there's something in the Bible that is in direct contradiction to that call, I guarantee you, you have not heard from God. What you have is a man-made calling, and that's not really a calling at all in the sense that we are speaking about a calling from God. Everything that we truly hear from the Spirit will never be in contradiction to God's Word. And many times, most times I would say, we're going to see some type of affirmation from God's Word that's going to show us that it's a good direction to go in. I'm not saying that the Bible is going to say, yeah, you go do this. 
I'm saying that it's going to affirm the thing that you're thinking about is probably a good thing and a good direction to go in. Maybe that someone before you has done something like that, and it was in God's will for their life. So long story short, if the Bible is against it, God is against it, and it's not a call on your life. The final referee I'm going to talk about today is the church. And by church, I mean the capital C church, which is the whole church, but I also mean the local body of believers that you belong to, the people that you're in covenant relationship with. These are the people that you are serving day in and day out. They see you struggle with things day in and day out. They see you grow day in and day out. I'm talking about your local pastor, your elders, the people that you invest your daily life in. They are instruments that God uses to point you to Jesus. And in the same way, you are an instrument that God uses to point them to Jesus. So if we think you have a specific call in your life, you're going to want to pass the idea by other people that know you and know your Christian walk. These people are going to be able to give you an indication about if you are well-equipped to do this or not. A good church partner that you are in covenant communion with will not be afraid to tell you if they think it is unwise and why. And hopefully they have a good biblical reason for it. It's not that they just think something under their own volition. And one caveat to this is exactly what Colin brought forth last week. And that is the fact that people we listen to, even our pastors and elders, they're also fallen people that need the grace of God just as much as we do. They are not infallible, nor are we, but they are great tools that God has placed in our lives. If you have two or more people in your life that think your calling may be a bad idea, you need to seriously reconsider if you've heard from God or not. Remember that this isn't a formula you could go through. You could get to the church side of things and people tell you it's not a good idea based on non-biblical reasons. Notice that I didn't say unbiblical, but I said non-biblical. God could be calling you to something that your parents or your church family just don't want you to do, but they have no good reason to tell you not to do it. And likewise, you could get a confirmation from them and an affirmation from them, and it still be not be what God is calling you to do. So as we start to close this discussion of God's calling on your life or, or specific things that he might have for you, I want to remind you of the sovereignty of God. All of the decisions that we make bear weight. If you don't believe in God, every decision that you make carries an infinite amount of weight because it's all up to you. Or you can feel as though every decision is trivial because life lacks significance. So on one hand, it's all up to you, but on the other hand, it doesn't really matter because there's no end to it at all. Living life without God is a paradox that people get sucked into all the time that either leads to infinite stress or complete apathy. But thinking about the Christian making decisions like this, we get a comfort whether we discern a call properly or not, however you want to define that. Because God is ultimately in control of all things. He is sovereign over all things. This place where human will and God's will meets is the only place where comfort and true significance abounds. And so it can be, too, with your discernment of God's call. All right. Well, you covered a lot of good ground there, Brett. Uh, there was a lot of stuff to go through. I was, I was trying to cut some things out of that, mm -hmm. but I just couldn't because there was too much that needed to be said. Yeah. So, 
Well, I have uh, I have a couple of things to to raise that uh, will probably give you a few more things to be said, <laughs> and probably our listeners a few more things to think about in regards to discernment. Yeah. Um, so you talk about the church being a referee, and you're talking about uh, the people that you see serving day in and day out. So we're we're talking about the the church as the called out the individuals, uh, the called out individuals uh, fo- uh, following Christ. Is that is that accurate? Like that you're you're talking specifically about the people who are maybe in roles of eldership or leadership within the local church body. Uh, I point them out so that people have those 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 folks in their head. They they carry a certain authority in the local church body. But I'm also talking about people that you're just like fellow members of your local church body. Mm-hmm. They also have things to say to you that that should matter and you should want to hear from them as well. Okay, and that's an important thing to to think about, I think. You know, when you you talk about discerning and you talk about bringing it to the church, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to somebody who's in uh, a position of pastoral leadership or of eldership. You could just be taking it to your husband or wife, the person in in the pew next to you, whatever it is, because they're part of that church too. But when we talk about the church today... You know, in 2018, I think that this is actually kind of a sad reality. We talk about the church as individuals, but the reality of it is they are corporate bodies with with goals that they're hoping to accomplish. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. They may promote the good of the organization over the good of the gospel, and that. I would say is something to consider whenever you are trying to decide what church you're going to invest your life in and who you're going to receive investment from. Sure. Um, hopefully, you've chosen a good a good church um, where that's not going to be an issue. Right. Well, it it becomes. It, it, I should say it can become an issue uh, when when you talk about the subject of discernment because uh, any church. You know, hopefully you've chosen well, and they're not going to let that interfere with with the the call of the gospel. Uh, but any church does have goals and things that it's trying to accomplish. And unfortunately, the sad reality is that sometimes those who are in roles of leadership can let the aspirations of the the corporate entity interfere with the well being of the the individual. And so they, they may – if you, if you go to somebody who's in leadership and you say that you have this call on your life and they see that call as detracting from what they're trying to do because they want you to do something else, there's a danger uh, with those in spiritual leadership of control or manipulation or, or coercion into following something that's not necessarily God's call, but it's what's best for the 501c3. I think what I would say to that person if that that came up would be, do they have good biblical reasons for pointing you in a certain direction? Or is it what I was talking about a second ago where are they using non-biblical reasons? It's not that that what they're saying is necessarily bad It's just or, or against the Bible. It's just reasons that are apart from the Bible, that the Bible does not speak into, that God does not speak into. If If they don't have good biblical reasons to point you in a certain direction, um, then I would be cautious if it looks like it is for their own advancement. Well, of course, the 
the church bodies are for their own advancement because the 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 best the better that they are, the better that they can reach other people, right? So it's a fine line. But if it if it seems like they're pushing you in a certain direction for the good of the organization, you might want to check around to some other people that don't have a dog in that fight. Sure. Um, and get get an opinion from them. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's exactly what I was getting at is if yeah. there's biblical reason backing it. And I know that there are churches out there that, that you, you see this. You see where because a person is in a role of pastoral leadership or a role of eldership, they feel as though they can and sometimes they feel as though they should discern for somebody else. And you can't do that. Uh, and I just I want to throw this out there for, for anybody who may be listening. I don't know if is probably a lesser known uh, scholar or theologian from history, but John of the Cross. Have you have you heard about him, Brett, or or know of any of uh, the things that he did in church history? No, go ahead. So church jo- history is something that I want to learn. So you go. So John of the Cross lived in in the 1500s, and he's uh, he was a big leader in what was essentially became to be known as the the Counter Reformation. So you have the Protestant Reformation yep. spearheaded by Martin Luther and, and um, John Calvin. And as a response to that, you had what's called the Counter-Reformation, which was more or less a revival within the Catholic Church itself, uh, where the Catholic Church said, you know, John of the Cross was a member of the Catholic Church. He was a Spanish, a Spanish monk, basically, mm-hmm. Spanish priest. And he said, you know what, they're right. I don't want to just abandon the Catholic Church and and the things that they're doing, but some of the things that they're saying are absolutely right. And he wrote about the abuses of leadership, the abuses of spiritual power, the abuses by those who are in roles of, of, like we said, pastoral leadership. And some of his writings just give accounts of some of the ways of this this coercion. And a lot of times you can even see it today. Just, you know, if you listen to the pastoral prayers that are said in, in some churches, there's a lot of times where a person will be praying to God for the congregation, but will also be trying to discern for the congregation how God should work in their lives. And there there can be a danger in that, and that's something that I just want our listeners to be aware of, and if you encounter it, to to resist it. And I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think it's important to that. I think that just goes to show you that learning from history, history is important, and seeing some of these these trends, especially in a place where Christianity has been and still is even though it's to a lesser extent, the dominant culture, that it makes leadership, the institutions, makes them comfortable. And so we have to be careful to not be comfortable, even if the institution that we belong to is comfortable. And we have to, you know, we have to we have to check that. The, the institution, the, and whenever I say institution, I don't mean capital C Church, all the called out believers. I mean the the organizations within that that we have to make, we have to remember that the institutions are being built by man. God has a role in that, but there are things there there is sin and unbiblical things that can creep into it. So we just want to we want to be careful about that. All right. So any final thoughts or, or what do you want to what do you want to build on moving forward? 
Uh, I think I'm going to leave that for now. I'm going to leave the calling stuff. If if our listeners have a question, I would love for them to, to email it in. We can revisit it later. Next week, I think I'm going to get into a doctrine of Christianity, and that's a scary word, doctrine. But uh, I think uh, I'm going to try to interact with culture a little bit um, with, a, with the doctrine of Imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. And I believe that for me uh, and for this culture, it could be one of the top three or four Christian doctrines that can impact us where we are right now. All right. I'm going to talk today, uh, continuing to build on this idea of truth, and talked about this over the past couple of episodes, how spiritual truth doesn't change, and how truth is freely available to anybody who desires it. God has given us the Bible to communicate truth to us, and even though it's free to all, most choose other things in favor of reading our Bibles. Well, today I want to talk about rejection, resistance, and compromise of biblical truth. Now, we've established that truth is a gift. It's freely available. Rejecting a gift is the same as rejecting the gift giver. Truth is a gift, and truth is free, and truth while it is sometimes hard, is never harmful. The Lord's statement in Matthew 7 about the wide gate and the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to life affirms that most people reject God and the truth leading to God. But my question today is kind of a tough one. Do born-again evangelicals on the way that lead to life also reject truth? And perhaps it may be kinder to say that evangelicals often resist truth that opposes traditional perspectives. Things like the church building and titles and the divide between clergy and laity and evangelical definitions of tithing and the format of most Sunday morning services and a board of elders and many etc. are things that are based simply on the traditions of men and not on biblical truth. In fact, these traditions are commonly directly opposed to biblical truth. And if you press them on these subjects, which I would not recommend, by the way, but the evangelical will likely change the subject rather than outright reject biblical truth. But isn't that dishonest? Well, I think it is. And do I mean every evangelical? Well, beloved, an evangelical, in order to remain an evangelical, must compromise. But before I go any further, I think it would be wise to define what I mean by an evangelical. See, a person is not an evangelical because they regularly attend an evangelical church. Some people attend because there's just simply nowhere else to go, and it's lonely out there. And these faithful soldiers manage to protect their hearts from being overwhelmed by a system at variance with the Word of God. But perhaps it's fair to say that a true evangelical is one who is intentionally blind to the unpleasant realities of evangelicalism, one who is loyal to and spiritually attached to evangelicalism, even to the man-made traditions therein, which are at odds with biblical truth. And this prolonged resistance to truth will harden a person's heart. As surely as iron rusts, hearts harden. Both are natural phenomena down here. But if iron is maintained properly, it will not rust. Likewise, if one's heart is maintained, it will not harden. 
As Christians, Christ is the keeper of our hearts. Only the Lord Jesus can keep the heart lithe and pliable. But resisting the spirit of truth, who will guide you into all truth, is resisting Christ. It's not wise. It's not healthy. It's a guaranteed way to a hardened heart. And it's not something that we want if we are trying to bear fruit for Christ. And while this does not prevent the evangelical from bearing good fruit, it certainly can hinder him. In fact, the truth is evangelicals bear good fruit. Perhaps their yield in North America and elsewhere is greater than all other Christian groups combined, simply because of their numbers and because they are less bound by traditions than Catholics or other mainline Protestants. However, they do have their traditions that are not in line with Scripture. And the evangelical rebellious to truths of the Word is majorly handicapped. They are playing tennis with a broken racket or trying to bounce a deflated basketball. And such a handicap can have alarming consequences. Now, someone may say, alarming consequences? Really? Really, my friend? Consider this. Evangelicals rarely, if ever, mention the upcoming judgment seat of Christ, which will reveal the quality of our service, whether it be gold or silver or precious stones or wood, hay, and straw. Perhaps most know that that will not be a cheerful day, and so they just avoid the subject altogether. Perhaps some know that the precious metals and the precious stones to build with is the Word of God. But building on traditions of men, as most do, is building with the flimsy materials, the wood, hay, and straw. And a building built with wood, for instance, it can seem very solid and sturdy. But if you test it with fire, it will not hold up. Evangelicals, as every Christian, influence others. We influence more than we think, in fact. We are walking, breathing epistles, preaching a message of one brand or another. We all affect the final tally of both heaven and hell. Gold, silver, and precious stones result in people being rescued. Wood, hay, and straw result in people not being rescued. So, beloved, are you building with the indestructible material of the Word of God or with the flimsy material of the traditions of men? Okay, a lot of that was talking about evangelicals. Can you, you, you gave a little bit of a definition, but whenever the word evangelical comes into the mind of the, the common American, what do you think the common American thinks an evangelical is? I I think the image in a person's mind is probably Billy Graham. Somebody out there preaching to the people, spreading the gospel. Mm -hmm. That's not really what I'm talking about. Yeah. What I'm talking about is sort of the church system, the the evangelical church system that's built on the traditions of men. And when when I talk about an evangelical, I mean somebody who is committed to that system, intentionally following that system, ignorant to or possibly in resistance to the fact that some of those traditions are man-made, human-built traditions that are not in line with the Word of God, that, that are not based on the Word of God for the most part. Some of them are in direct contradiction to the Word of God, uh, but they don't care. They are sold out for that, that system. 
And I think I think later on we maybe we'll change the name. We won't call it evangelicalism because of the the imagery that that paints. Uh, so we'll have to come up with a new a new term for that. Yeah, uh, evangelicals really taking on a political undertone to it. Uh, I mean, there are people that don't even believe in Jesus that are called evangelicals now. Um, so I just I wanted to press you a little bit on that to make sure that our audience understands where you're coming from and that you're not using the political statement of it. You mention in here that evangelicals, evangelicalism may not press as much on the judgment. Can you elaborate for that uh, that a little bit? And then I'm going to – I have something else I want to go into, but can you elaborate just a little bit on that? Yeah, well, uh, that was just sort of an example. Um, and the way that uh, evangelicals deal with the second coming of Christ, they don't talk about a judgment. They, they talk about, you know, Christ is going to come back and his kingdom is going to, uh, you know, reign on this earth for forever, which is true. That's all true. But there is going to be a judgment of both believers and non-believers, of both the living and the dead, and that subject is one that's avoided altogether. So I really just use that as an example of uh, sort of the way that teaching is done in most in, in, within that church system. The, the topics that, want, that, that advance the, the system are, are taught, and the ones that are scary or hard to understand or, or difficult to deal with and challenging, most of the time they're just sort of swept aside. They're not dealt with. The tradition of a tradition of evangelicalism, I mean, by definition, is evangelism, right? And so we would, in evangelicals, should be, uh, should have evangelism at the forefront. Doesn't talking about that stuff, like the judgment of God, doesn't that get in the way of evangelism? Um, we can talk about it later. Like, let's get them in the door first, and then we'll talk about the tough stuff later. Is that, I mean, that seems like a good strategy to me. Okay. Well, is that a biblical strategy? Like, if you look at the way that Paul wrote in the New Testament, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, he, he said, I'm going to write to remind you of the things that I taught you when I was there. Well, he was with them for maybe a year. I think I, I'd have to go back into the book of Acts and see how long he was actually there. But he talks in his letters to the Thessalonians about the second coming of Christ and about a judgment that's coming and about the, the Antichrist that's coming. So these are all things that Paul taught them within the span of a year. How many churches can you go into and be there? You, you, you go day one, a year later, You've heard about the second coming of Christ and the judgment that's going to happen and the Antichrist that's coming and the, the false political system that's going to be set up so that it can be overthrown by the returning Messiah. It doesn't happen. And that's, I mean, that's the biblical model. But aren't we just, at that point, aren't we just scaring people? Like, like we go from one where we're not talking about it and then the other one, we're telling we're telling people all the bad stuff that's going to happen. At that point, aren't we just scaring people? Well, I don't think it's necessarily scaring people. It's equipping people with that knowledge so that they can also go out and 
make disciples, to follow that great commission. Because, you know, there is something to be said for the the negativity of evangelicalism by scaring people, or uh, of uh, not evangelicalism, but evangelizing by just scaring people. But people need to know that. Like, when, when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, and he said, uh, he said, whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. What does it mean to perish? Why, why should people believe in him? What are they being saved from? People want to know that. And if we just sweep that under the rug, then we're not really giving them, we're not really giving them the truth. At that point, it's, well, if there's no benefit to believing, then why even believe? Exactly. Yeah, I get you. I want to go back before I get done with my questions. I want to go back to the very beginning. You list off some traditions. You mentioned stuff like uh, board of elders, um, the way that the the church service is set up. Why do you think things like that get in the way? Like maybe give an, give an example of one of those things getting in the way of what what God would have for us. Uh, well, okay, I'll give you I'll give you one example. I'll take the first one off the list: the church building. And I probably in a future podcast will go into some of these a little bit more to show sort of the origin of where they came from and and a little bit more about why they interfere. But the church building, okay, where in the New Testament are we commanded to build a building? The New Testament church met in people's houses, and somewhere along the line, I think it was actually Origen in in the second or third century who began to use the term church to refer to a place. But in the New Testament, it's never used that way. Church refers to the people. The ecclesia always refers to a people. It never refers to a building. And the, the reason that that can get in the way is if you look at the amount of money that is spent on construction projects to build these massive buildings for churches in America today, there's millions of dollars that gets poured into that. And in fact, if you look at a church budget, okay, you look at a church budget, 50% of their budget, this is just on average, this is not every church, but this is kind of a, an average of what you see in America. 50% of the church budget goes to pay the salaries of the pastor and the staff and everything like that. Another 30% goes to pay for the building. It goes to, to the mortgage or the rent, plus uh, the maintenance and the upkeep, the electricity, the, the air conditioning, all that stuff. So that's 80% of the budget for a church that's going to pay the that's going to pay a fixed salary to the pastor and is going to to maintain this building. And so you have another 20% left for things like taking care of the poor. That's not even what get, goes to taking care of the poor, but that's what's left of the pie. And if you look at a breakdown, a line item breakdown of most church it, it would not be common to see you know, $125,000 allocated to the building and maybe $5,000 allocated to taking care of the poor saints. And that's backwards. I think someone that would defend that would say, look at Israel. They built the great temple twice. I mean, Solomon, it was, it was a display of all how powerful and how beautiful God is. 
that can be our church. People can see how great God is to us and come and join us. What's your response to that? Well, what happened in the New Covenant? In the Old Covenant, you have, and actually we'll get into this a little bit more too. I don't really want to take up our time with this, but the temple in the Old Testament was where God dwelt. He was there. The, the Shekinah glory was there, dwelling between the cherubim on the ark. That is where God lived. That is absolutely where God was. The new covenant is different. Jesus said, you know what? The Holy Spirit is going to come. The Holy Spirit is going to dwell within you. We're told in Scripture, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's no Shekinah glory dwelling between the cherubim and the ark. The Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory of God, is living inside of every believer. So we are the temple. That's why there's no instruction in the New Testament to build, uh, to build a building. God doesn't dwell in buildings made by hands. Preach. <laughs> okay. All right. That's all I have. Uh, what are you going forward? What do you want to? What are you, what are you going to talk about? Uh, well, I'm going to talk uh, more a little bit about this. Uh, I think I'm going to actually start to call it the way it is. This church system is the way it is. That's how it is today. But I'm going to talk about within the way it is. What happens uh, with that? Uh, another one of the things on the list there that clergy and laity divide. Um, and people sentence themselves to life as a pew person, and we'll talk about what that means. And we'll also talk about um, the, sort of the, the idea of being seeker-friendly, and is that something that uh, was modeled by, by Jesus? So that's, uh, that's kind of what I'm going to have going forward. All right, and since you said going forward, that means that our time is up. And as the music fades in, any final thoughts for our listeners, Colin? Uh, no, well, okay. I did want to throw this one thing out there when we're talking about the the temple in the Old Testament. Uh, there was the the temple in Jerusalem, and there was the temple in uh, in Sinai. No, you know what? I'm not going to even get into that. That's that's just too much too much time. But um, yeah, uh, we'll do some research on your own, listeners. Make sure you subscribe rate five stars if you don't like it don't rate less than that until you've emailed us a question or a comment and then rate once we've replied give us some give us some due time and we will see you next week thanks for listening to the double check podcast see you